2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. We've been doing a series, if you're just joining us this morning, on the life of Elijah. And we're kind of going past that a little bit. We had seen how Elijah was taken up into heaven through the uh, miracle of God snatching him away with that tornado of fire, that chariot of fire. And then afterwards, Elisha, his successor, is now taking his place. God has helped Elisha. When he's walked away from where Elijah was transported, he immediately followed suit doing the same miracles, slapping the river Jordan with that cloak. The water's open, and he walked out across on dry ground. And now we're following a little bit of what happened after that. The, uh, the ongoing ministry of Elijah through the life of his successor, that is Elisha. And as you go into Second. Kings, starting with chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. There's a number of stories that are about the ministry and the life and the message of Elisha. And if I mix them up, I'm talking Elisha this morning, not Elijah. And it's just tough to keep them straight at times. But you start reading about the stories about, like I said, he hit the River Jordan, the miracle of walking through. There's a story that's told about how waters were poisonous. And he, uh, he put some, some uh, pouring some water in and the waters were no longer dangerous. Just like what happened with the bitter waters that Moses had at Merah. The same type of thing. There's a story told about how a widow was without any kind of food or sustenance and they were going to come and take her boys away into slavery because of her debt. And Elijah says, ma'am, go and get as many oil pots as you possibly can and then start pouring out of the one pot in your house. And there was a miracle that it just kept on pouring, kept on pouring. As many pots as she had, they were filled from the one that, that Elijah, through God's power, was able to just multiply the oil like Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves. There's a story told about how there's another woman who he assisted. This woman was barren. He prayed. She was able to conceive. And then her son, after a few years, he's out in the field working with his dad, and he gets a headache and collapses and dies. Elisha is involved with raising her up. He goes there. He lays upon the boy. He pleads. He breathes upon the boy some more. And after an extended period of time, the boy comes back to life. God uses him to do a phenomenal miracle. There's food that's going out in a time of famine. And it's, a, it's a food that's got a lot of people sick. He pours a little flour on it. I, the flour has no mystical power, but he pours some flour upon it. And the food is, is uh, now no longer dangerous or poisonous. There's a story told about how he gets some bread in this time of famine. And he tells his servant, go and feed a hundred men that are sitting over there hungry. And the man says, how can this feed a hundred men. And through his, his empowerment by God, those hundred men are all fed full from just a few loaves of bread. He does these miracles time and time again. And there's even, there's even that story, I need to take some time and talk about it. next week, I'll do that, that he, there's some boys that come out, young men that come out and they mock him. And he calls she-bears out. All of this is justifying that he is a, a prophet of God, that he is an advisor, that he is the true successor of this great prophet Elijah. And as a result, Elisha has a whole different ministry with the rulers, with the leaders. He's able to go into the throne rooms and he's able to advise kings. And where, he, where Elijah was kind of put off by the kings and Ahab wanted nothing to do with them, some of those who are now the new kings, they want Elisha's help. We'll look at a little bit more about that next week. But there's one story that captures our attention that many of you are familiar with, but some of you may not know. It's in the midst of all these stories. It's the story of a man by the name of Naaman who can, all of a sudden he's, he's filled with leprosy and God uses Elisha to bring about a healing in this man's life. And it's a phenomenal story. It's in Second Kings. 
chapter 5. And it's interesting that Jesus picks this one story from the life of Elisha and uses it when he's preaching to say, hey, just like what happened to Naaman in that whole scenario, this is a message for you. And he preaches a message based upon Naaman. The story is in 2 Kings chapter 5. As I just read a few of the verses, it says, Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, he's not a Jew was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies. They had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she, this servant girl, is now waiting upon Naaman's wife. And this servant girl says to his mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, northern Israel, for he would recover him of his leprosy. She's talking about Elisha. And one went and told the Lord, told Naaman, saying, Thus and thus said the little maid girl that was taken from the land of Israel. The king of Syria said to Naaman, who apparently shared all this message with his, with his boss, the king, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And <clears throat> Naaman departed and took with him 10,000 talents of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold, <clears throat> 10 changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, the letter from his king, saying, Now, when this letter is come unto you, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may recover him of his leprosy. Let's stop there. Let's just set up the scene. Just a background information that you've already seen. We know that he is <clears throat> a leader in Ben-Hadad's army. Without reading chapters 3 and 4, Ben-Hadad is now the major opponent in one attacking Israel, northern Israel. He's from this Aramean area. His country is called the Syrians. And they're coming against Samaria, the northern ten tribes, the capital city of Samaria. And they're causing problems. They're doing all kinds of difficulties. We'll see how, how they do invasions a little bit later. Uh, next week we'll deal with it. But one of his leading generals is, is this Naaman dude. Naaman is this leader. He is used of God. In 1 Kings 20, he's led battles. 1 Kings chapter 22, he's led some armies. In fact, Josephus, who is a Jewish history writer, says it was Naaman that shot the arrow that kills King Ahab in that battle where Ahab is dressed up like somebody else so he doesn't get killed. It's Naaman, according to Josephus. We don't know if that's true, but an interesting story. But he leads a lot of, a lot of the armies, and God allows this Syrian general to have victory over the Jews as a means of discipline, getting their attention, letting them know that they can't take God's blessings for granted. And in some of those... In some of those battles, he's gained a reputation. He's this mighty man of valor. It literally means he's a well-known warrior. He's a brave person. He's a leader of all these troops. He's powerful. He's in control. The story is just trying to get us to understand in verse 1, this guy is a powerful, powerful man. He is in control. But then there's a B-U-T in here. But he can't control his own health. He all of a sudden contracts this form of leprosy, and as a result, he has got these pox, this disease that's turning his skin white, that literally is a rotting away of the, outs of the flesh, and it works its way inwardly to the organs. It's a disease that would absolutely scar somebody. In the, now, in the Jewish circles, you would have nothing to do. You put the leper away. <clears throat> in some of the other ancient empires and worlds, what they did is they couldn't treat it. There was no treatment. But they would still let the people do some interaction. But we have this, this man whose name literally means, Naaman means in, the, uh, in his native tongue, a handsome person, 
a good-looking person who's got power, and all of a sudden God's taking it all away. All of a sudden, everything that he's doing, he's being afflicted with this illness. This good-looking guy, this man of power, has lost his greatest strength, his health. He's lost some of his attractiveness. And so he's in a desperate situation because there's no cure for this disease. And he in this land that is more supposedly more advanced than the Jewish people as far as medicines, the, there's, there's nothing they can do. And the slave girl that we read who is a Jewish captive from one of his previous raids, she tells him about Elisha. He goes to his king. The king says, hey, this is great. Why don't you go to, to the king of Israel? I'll send a letter with a white flag and we'll let you go into the land. <clears throat> and you come, ask for help, and surely they're going to give us some help. And so they send, they send the letter. And obviously we understand Naaman is the king that he works for, Ben-Hadad, really, really, really helps, uh, is relying upon Naaman. And Naaman goes, takes this letter, and the king of Israel sees it when he reads the letter from the king, King Ben-Hadad, and he says, I'm supposed to cure this man of leprosy? This is a trap. This is a means of, of bringing about a new war. You know, this is just impossible. And he makes the statement, I stopped right before that verse, where he says, am I God? Can I take away leprosy? Indicating how serious this was and how impossible it was. And so what happens is it shows us that the king of Syria, Naaman, they have more faith than the king of Israel does. They believe that the prophet of God, Elisha, is powerful. The king of Israel is in a panic. He forgets all about his prophet. He forgets all about turning to God in this moment. But here is this pagan king, this pagan general. They're, they're in a desperate spot, but, and they believe. They believe the words of this little servant girl. And so they have this sense of faith and belief, and they're looking for it. And so what happens is Elisha hears about it. You read the next couple of verses while I just meander. Elisha hears about it, and Elisha sends a note to the king. He knows the king is distraught. The king is, is thinking this is difficult. God, Elisha knows God can do work here. And he says, send Naaman to me. He said, have him come to my house. I'll take care of him. And so the message is given to Naaman, and Naaman comes over to Naaman's house. So here he comes with his whole entourage, shows up at the house of, of Elisha, and it's very clear. If you notice the next couple of verses. It says, Elisha does not come outside to greet him. He doesn't meet him at the door. He tells his servant. He says, you go outside and you talk to General Naaman. And so the servant comes out and says to General Naaman, the prophet tells us that you're supposed to go and dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times and the leprosy will go away. It's not because the Jordan River is special. The Jordan River is a dirty river. It's just like, a, you know, it's the Swati of Israel, okay? The Swatera, excuse me, of Israel. Okay, it's, it's that type of a river. And so Naaman hears this and, and, and Naaman's reaction is an interesting reaction. Because it's, a, it's not about the river, it's just a test. Naaman, are you going to listen to the prophet? Naaman is really put out. The word in the Hebrew is that he's outraged. In the English it says that as well. He's wroth. He is so ticked for a couple of reasons. You disrespected me by not even coming out and meeting me? I'm a general. Everybody bows to me. Everybody comes at my command. Everybody waits on me. And the prophet doesn't even dare come out and greet me with decent hospitality. He is ticked. Yeah, he is really mad. And then on top of it, he says, wait a minute, I could be at home and be in clean rivers, better rivers than what you got in Israel. Remember, now, he's an enemy. He disdains the Jews and everything about the Jews. And so he is, he's mocking the Jordan River. He's saying, this is, you know, this is a dirty river. Why should I dip in the Jordan River to get clean? I'll get dirtier in the Jordan River. I can be back home and I can, you know, my water's better than your water. 
And it says, read the next couple of verses, look at it. His servants calm him down because he's leaving in a rage. And his servants calm him down. They say, hey, no, 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 wait a minute. We've come this far. You can imagine what they're trying to say to this general who could at any moment have them killed. They're saying, you know, we've come this far. Why not try it? What have we got to lose? You know, we've only come several weeks. We've only come with this big entourage. It doesn't hurt to listen to girl. Again, there's some sense of we think this will work. We think this will work. The king of Israel had no, no confidence, but the, these men do. And so what happens is they get him calmed down, according to verse 13. And uh, Naaman then does exactly what the prophet says. He goes to the dirty Jordan River, and he dips himself seven times. And it says when he comes up the seventh time, his body is like, you know, baby clean body. It's totally, totally restored. In the sense that all of a sudden there is no problem whatsoever. The leprosy is gone. In response... You know, there's, there's a tremendous response to what happens. You know, he gets all excited and he wants to... We'll, we'll catch up with that part in a moment. Now, just stopping right there. Is there anything in this story that we could apply today? Let's go to the Swatera and dip ourselves. <laughs> See, we wouldn't do that. Okay? One, it's cold. Two, it's muddy. And three, we've got showers and bathtubs. They're better than the Swati. Okay? That, that, here's the sense of what this man is doing. You and I, if we look at it, can we, can we just say, hey, look at if we're hearing this story for the first time. If we're reading this and this is written to us as a people, what is God's message in this story? It doesn't have to do with dipping in the swati. It doesn't have to do with baptism. There's bigger elements here. Okay, The bigger elements go this way. God works providentially. That is an overriding, this is an important thought here, that the readers would understand that at times does God allow illnesses for a bigger, higher purpose? He did. He allows Naaman to be afflicted with leprosy. He allows a young girl to be captured, taken from her home, put in the home of Naaman who contracts the leprosy so that she knows about it. She can advise him about the prophet. God is working this all out providentially. Why? Well, one of the obvious things is to bring Naaman to faith, to conversion, which happens in the, in the conclusion of the story. So you have God working in a great way. Part of this is protecting Israel. If Naaman gets cured by an Israelite prophet, what might that convince Naaman not to do in the future? To attack Israel. There is providence working here to work out a bigger, better outcome. God works providentially. You, you can start thinking about, looking about what happened this week, okay, in your life. Some of you... Does God allow difficulties to come in? Slip and slide and fender benders on Thursday. Okay. Does God allow illnesses to come? Yes. God is not inept or unaware, but he works providentially. It's difficult for us. It might be costly, but is God working all things together for good to them that love the Lord? The answer is yes. God works providentially. God might be working providentially of putting you in a certain spot at a certain moment to minister to somebody else like this young slave girl. God works providentially. There's another story that comes out, another lesson. God's overall purpose in what he does is found out by the statement that the prophet makes in verse 8. The prophet makes the statement, send Naaman to me, king. 
I'll take care of him so that he shall know there is a true prophet in Israel. It's not that Elisha says so that I will get rewards. That's not the case because Elisha refuses the rewards. Elisha isn't about getting glory to himself. Elisha is saying this is about us presenting God. Uh, Him knowing that I am a messenger of God. Him knowing that I represent God. Him knowing that I can do, as God's spokesman, can do something because of the God in heaven who is the real God, Jehovah. Not Baal, not the gods he serves. The overall purpose is exalting God Almighty. That's the overall purpose. That is why all things are created for his glory, for his power, for his pleasure. That God puts us where we are, that God works in what we're doing, that God allows things to providentially set us back, that God at times gives us the difficulties. Why? To bring glory to himself by the way that we respond. That's a lesson here. That is a lesson for the Jewish people who at this time are on the fence yet. Should we follow Baal? Should we follow Jehovah? And God is saying, I can allow things into your life so that you can come to a point of real faith and that you can present that I am the true God. There's another lesson here, a tremendous lesson. And it is one that you and I should pause and really think about. God rewards people according to their responses to him. There's two people in this story that are going to be contrasted. Naaman, who operates in trust, and the servant of the prophet. Naaman, who is a servant of the king, operates in trust, and the servant of the prophet Elijah, who operates with treachery. They are contrasted in this story. Two different individuals that respond to God in opposite ways. And what's more amazing is where they start and where they end up. Let's do the trust factor. Let's let's think about Naaman. How God blessed this man with with a cleansing, with a healing, with a restoration, with something that was... nobody else could provide a restoration of health. Some of you can understand. Naaman has just been to the doctor and the doctor says you have terminal cancer. You have a terminal disease. He walks out. He's going to breathe this. He's going to sleep this. He's going to eat this for the next few days. His wife, his family is distraught. He is alive, but he's dying. And God takes away the disease 100%. How would you feel? That's the story. Now, why does God bless this fella? God rewards those who demonstrate a trust. Now, here's the case. Now, does, does everyone get that type of healing? No, that's not always the case. But in this moment, in this moment, in this situation, let's demonstrate real trust. Let's talk about it. How God might lead and strengthen in different ways, but he does bless everyone who demonstrates trust in him. Naaman's an odd character for a story on trust. Because he's one of those that's not what we would say is one of the blessed people. He's not one of the elect of Israel. He's non-Jewish. He's an enemy That's the point that Jesus makes in Luke chapter 4 when he's preaching to this same region years later. He says, here's this outsider, this Gentile, and he's the only leper healed in that Old Testament era. He's not even Jewish by blood. He's been attacking us. And Jesus' message to his fellow Jews is it's not guaranteed the blessings of God just because you're a certain nationality or you're a certain bloodline or you grew up in a certain home. You have to trust. 
And here's a man who is outside of that group. In fact, he was an enemy of God. If we understand the story and the scene and what's happened the last few chapters in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, he's the attacker. He's been leading armies against Israel. He's been taking prisoners. He's got one of them in his house, a Jewish girl. In fact, you read later in the chapter that he meets back with the prophet and says, thank you, thank you, thank you for bringing about the healing. And now I know that there's only one God. It's the God of Israel. And then he talks about how when he goes home, he still has to attend temple worship to Rimon. And he's admitting, I am, I have been a pagan worshiper. He's telling that in the past, in fact, when he showed up and talks about Elisha, he doesn't say the Lord, our God. He says Elisha's God. He comes to the Lord not as, an, not as one who is a child of God. He comes on the point that he's an enemy. He's an outsider when he's first confronted with trusting Jehovah. He's one who is away from him. Do you remember another Bible character who was an enemy of God and gets converted? Saul, who is out persecuting. We know him now today as the Apostle Paul. But he starts out as Saul the persecutor, the attacker. He's the one that brings about the first martyrdom in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 6. He's attacking Christians. He's hailing the men and women and children to prison. And then God deals with him, strikes him down on the roadside, and he comes to a point of faith. There is multiple passages of Scripture that talk about this, that tell us, I want you to join me for just a moment in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, hold your finger in 2 Kings 5, but join with me in Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what you're going to find as you go through the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with how the Bible presents you and me, the Bible presents us spiritually as people that are in desperate need. It describes us spiritually. Okay. Now, Naaman was a physical enemy of the Lord. In the New Testament, we are described as enemies of God. We're at odds with God. We are said in the New Testament to be, to be followers of Satan. When people do that which is wrong, they aren't listening to the Lord. They're following Satan. And it says in the New Testament, in like in Ephesians, it talks about us, as such, we are spiritually dead. I know we walk around, we walk, we talk, but the idea in the New Testament is that we are separated from God. We're dead people. That to God, we're, we're obnoxiously dead. We're decomposing. We're something he wants to put away from us. We don't show a life and a love for the Lord in our natural state, our natural sinful state. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this. Walk with me through the passage. And you has he, in verse 1, quickened, made, made to come back to life, who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, our lifestyle in times past, where we followed the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, and of the mind. And we were by nature children of anger, children of doing the opposite, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, separated from God, a stench to God, has he made us alive, quickened us together with Christ, for grace by grace you are saved. He hath raised us up together, made us to sit. And this is the the theory, the, the um, yeah, I'm going to say theoretical. This is the judicial. This is the expectation of God that we haven't fully understood. But it's, it's in the game plan. It's there. It's as if it already happened in the mind of God, even though we're still here on this earth. 
He said, it is so sure that I'm telling you by past tense verbs, you are already have your place, your reservation in heaven. And he goes on, you were dead in sins, hath he quickened and raised us up together, made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Amen, amen, amen. We are saved, not because we deserve it. We are at odds with God. We are the enemy. Naaman comes <coughs> and puts trust in what God can do, not because he by nature, not because in the past, he has been one that you would say, oh, he's got to be blessed. He's such a good guy. He's such a, he's such a, you know, fits the mold. He doesn't fit any mold for God to bless. He's an enemy. He's an outsider. Colossians 1 talks about it as well. and calls us literally, <coughs> excuse me, enemies of God. Romans does the same thing. That's you and me. That in our sinful state, in our, in our natural state, that, that the state that we walk around with, that we operate by, we are apart from God Almighty. But by His grace, He makes an offer to us. An offer to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from our spiritual leprosy that would condemn us to hell. And He says, here, I want to cleanse you of all your sin, of your lying, of your bitterness, of your anger, of your greed, of your illicit thoughts, of any deeds that you have operated by. I want to forgive you of that. And I want to give you total cleansing so you're like a brand new baby starting all over. And when I cleanse you spiritually, I will birth you into my family and you become born again. And you become a child of God. And where we start is understanding, when, before that happens, I am not by nature in a good standing with God. By nature, I am at odds with God. By nature, I am separated from God. By nature, we are, at, we are considered on Satan's side. By nature, we are enemies of God. We need to come with mercy, humble ourselves, and say, God, I cannot cleanse myself of my spiritual sins and leprosy. I need you to cleanse me. You cleanse me. It's not the River Jordan that he uses. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you. And he offers us this cleansing. And so what happens is then we get salvation. Then we get cleaned up. And then we become a part of this new family. God can do this for people who trust. Even in impossible situations. I've already mentioned that this leprosy was just beyond anybody's ability. But God could work if there was a matter of trust. We know this, that with trusting with the Lord, at times, there is the forgiveness of sin. And what greater miracle is there than the forgiveness of sin? Folk, what greater miracle? Yeah, we get concerned about, oh, I need to pay this bill. God, that's great. But think about your sins forgiven for all eternity. There's no bigger miracle. And he says that if he has done the greatest of the miracles for us, how shall he not do much more for us? Taking care of us as we trust. Providing for us. Answering our prayers as we trust. Even in impossible situations, how the Lord works. I was reading a story about R.A. Torrey. Some of you have heard about him. He was, a, he was a great preacher. did ministries up in Canada. Wrote many books. But he tells about when he was a young boy, his mother was a believer. She was praying for him, praying for him. And he was getting into a lot of different wild type of stuff with wine woman sex song. So, you know, all that kind of stuff that was evil that, that was breaking his mother's heart. And he came to his mom one day who would be praying for him. He would hear her pray when he would come home late at night drunk. But he could hear in her bedroom on her knees praying for him to repent of his sin and call upon Christ. And it bothered him, bothered him. He came to a point, he says, I cannot live here anymore. I've got to leave. I cannot be by you. 
And so she's pleading with him, don't, don't leave, don't leave. Things are going to get worse, you know, and he's leaving. He's walking out of the house, and she goes to the gate with him, and she's saying, son, just remember this. When you reach the lowest, darkest point of your life, remember that Jesus Christ is there if you turn and believe in him. He will forgive you. He will work in your heart. And so he goes off. He gets into deeper type of garbage lifestyle where he's you know, all drinking himself to death at a young man in his early 20s, young age. And life has just gotten more, more vulgar, more vain. And he comes to a point where he's running out of money, running out of friends. And he finds himself in one of these halfway homes that he's just you know, at a destitute level. And he tells in his, in his book about how he just reached the bottom. And there was, he had a gun. And so he's laying on his bed thinking, this is, this is not living. This is horrible. And he reaches over and he says, I'm going to end my life. And he grabs the gun to, to kill himself. And then the words of his mother came to his mind. When you reach the lowest, darkest point, remember Jesus. He said he began to cry and he rolled out of the bed on the floor with the, humbling himself before the Lord and said, God, the God of my mother is the way he addressed, her, uh, addressed him. God of my mother, if you're real, I need you now. And he prayed for forgiveness. He prayed for, for strength. He prayed for purpose in his life. And he said there was a period of several minutes going by and he was in this battle as he describes it. He says it was just a warring taking place. And then... A peace and a sobriety came over him. And he, was, he said, I had this inner assurance, God is real. And God will forgive me of all my sins if I trust. He prayed, got off his knees. And that night he said, I went to my mother's home. Made my way back. So by early morning, I got to the house where she was at. And when she saw me, she came out and she said, have you come to that place in your life? And he said, I did last night. He goes on and becomes a tremendous preacher of God. Why? Because he had to come to a point where he trusted for cleansing that it wasn't in anything else. Now, can I, can I throw this out? God will bless even those who don't have great knowledge. Even those who don't show great maturity at first. Watch this story. Naaman first shows up and did you remember reading? He brought all this money with him. He brought all these clothes with him. It's not to pay for night's lodging. He's bringing this because in his mind, the way he can get cleansing is by buying it. Can you imagine somebody thinking that? Somebody thinking that if I put money in a plate, I will get forgiveness. If I invest in missions, I'll get forgiveness. If I give to the poor, I'll get forgiveness. He's not the first man. But he comes with all this money and and these clothes, and he thinks it's, by the way, just to give you a little bit of data here, This is based on this week's prices of silver and gold, okay? Now, what he brings is this 10 talents of silver. That's about 1,200 ounces at, this is the latest price. So he brings around 17,580 bucks in just the silver. That's, That's a decent amount of money to offer somebody. I think I would accept that. If somebody said, can I come to your church for 17,580 bucks? I'd say, yeah, you can even sit in my seat. Okay, that'll work. But then on top of it, he brings shekels of gold. Now, when you go by today's price, we're talking almost $3 million in gold. You can stand up here for that kind of money, okay? So here he's bringing all this, and he has to come to a point that he realizes his money isn't going to get him to heaven. His position as a general, his not, nothing 
is going to get him to heaven. And he's thinking that when he first comes, that I can buy my way. But he's got to realize, wait a minute, you can't. But that's the way he's approaching healing. He's thinking he can buy it. It's like Gary Tober tells about a little boy that was from his church, goes to the goes to Washington Monument with his family. And he gets up and he's looking at this and sees the security guard. So he walks up, pulls a quarter out of his pocket and hands it to the security guard. He says, I would like to buy this building. <laughs> the security guard laughs like you just did and said, you don't have enough money. So he reached in and got nine more cents. And he said, here's 34 cents. Is that enough? The security guard laughed and said, now listen, son. There's three facts you need to understand. Number one, you don't have enough money to buy the monument. Number two, it's not for sale, even if you had enough money. And number three, if you're an American, you already own it. Listen, forgiveness of sin is not for sale. You don't have enough money to buy it. And if you come to Jesus Christ, it's yours. You got it already. So here's Naaman who comes, and he says, okay, I'm going to believe. And he goes into the river, does what he's told. But back in, it's an interesting phrase, if you jump back here, and you can make of what you will. But he goes back and he makes this comment um, in verse 16. As the Jehovah lives before whom I stand, I will receive... Oh, that's, that's Elisha speaking. Um, verse 15. Behold, this is, this is the general. Now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing from your servant. And so he, his... his His faith is convinced Jehovah is God. (laughs) And you and I think, well, that's it. He's going to become a Jew. No. No. In fact, he hangs on to a little bit of his superstition because he doesn't fully understand. He says, I'm going to take, do you mind if I take two meals full of of dirt back with me? (laughs) Have all the dirt you want. Understand in that day, you tie a God to dirt. He's the God of... Lebanon. So if you're going to worship him, take some dirt of Lebanon with you so that when you pray, the dirt is a reminder there's a God in Lebanon. So he's saying the God of Israel is real and this stuck in his superstition, I've got to take some dirt with me so I can worship God. He's not mature in the faith. In fact, he makes another statement that's going to bother some of you, but he says, hey, when I go back to my home country, I know that Jehovah is God, but part of my military responsibility, I still got to go to the temple with the king. And I got to worship, I got to enter into Rimon's temple. And when I get there, just know that I'm going to go to that temple, but I'm not thinking of Rimon, I'm thinking of Jehovah God. And so you and I would say, he's got to grow out of that. Sure, he's got to grow out of the superstition. But it didn't keep him, it didn't keep God from giving him forgiveness. In his immaturity, in his need for further growth, all he needed to do was to come by faith with repentance, and he was cleansed. Do you realize what this means? To get saved doesn't mean we have to understand everything in the Bible. To get saved doesn't mean that person isn't saved because they aren't just like you and me who have been saved a number of years. They might have some growing to do. But if they come by faith with repentance, give them chance to grow. They can still be born again and be a babe. I know that went over like a lead balloon with some folk. But it's biblically true. Not everybody is spiritually birthed as an adult. They need to grow as a babe in Christ. 
So here he is. God doesn't hold back his forgiveness to this man, his cleansing to this man, just because he didn't know all the theology. I'm so glad, by the way, because when I got saved, I still didn't understand the Bible for a period of time. I still didn't understand with the books of the Bible. I still don't know. I still struggle. When these kids from Calvary Club programs stand up and they say all the books in order, I try to say them with them and I usually get confused. There's, there's, uh, there's in this idea of coming to Christ, there is just simple repentance and faith. And God honors that. God honors simple trust at times without us understanding all the deep theological truths. Now we're growing, we're trying to learn. But if you who are believers will trust the Lord by praying to him. You say, I don't understand how all the prayer works. That's okay. Pray. Well, I don't understand how. That's okay. Pray. And trust the Lord. God so blesses simple trust in faith. He has it with this guy. He works in his heart, works in his life, as long as he showed the qualities that were important. There was humility. Humbling himself, this proud man, this leader, this warrior saying, it's not me, it's not my rivers, it's not my money, it's not anything. I just have to humbly submit to what I've been told. I need to obey what God says. And by simple obedience, God bless us. Not until he does the seventh dip, by the way. He's got to do everything. You've you got to stop and got to ask yourselves, okay, what are you trusting in for spiritual cleansing? What are you trusting in to get you to heaven? Yourself, that's not humility. A church, that's not humility. Are you trusting in what God provides? Are you coming before him and saying in humility, I am a sinner? Or are you like me, where I was? Where it was like, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as, yeah. Not, not just you, Jim, but anybody sitting there. Sorry. Okay, the hand just went your way, buddy. Uh, just drawn by the Spirit. Uh, but we can make ourselves look good by comparing to others. That's not humility. Humility is coming before the Lord and saying, even, even those of us who have called upon Christ at some time, humbling ourselves and saying, God, I want to obey you more. I want to trust you more. I need your cleansing. I, I, God, please, work in my heart, work in my life. Help me to do what's right. Help me to obey your word. Help me to trust you enough that what you tell me to do, I will do the simple things that are so hard. Sometimes I don't understand how this is going to work out. I don't know all the details, but help me in my unbelief. Help me to believe and trust you. How's it going? How's that working in your life? Jesus said, this isn't easy. He's talking to people hundreds of years later saying, this type of simple trust, that's not easy. Because a lot of you Jewish people, he was saying to the, his crowd, you've got all kinds of different ideas that, that it's not about trust, it's about our goodness. And he says there's only one, one leper in all of the ancient area of what we're talking about that got healed. And so he says this is an example of an outsider coming by faith and trust and how God can work. Now that's your story of trust. There is in this story treachery that we can just do in a couple minutes here. The story is of the servant of Elisha, the one who came out of the house and said, Commander, my, my prophet boss says you're supposed to go dip in the water. He was the conveyor of all this. He had talked to Naaman. 
And what happens is, Naaman comes back after the healing, and he comes to Elisha, and he says, Elisha, now I know that there is the God, he's in Israel, and I'm going to take some dirt back with me, and I'm going to worship him when I go to the pagan temple with my king. I'm going to be thinking of Jehovah. And here, I want you to take some of this $3 million, some of this 17000 in silver, and some of these changes of clothes. And the prophet says, no way, no way. I want nothing to do with it, and refuses it. And off goes the, the commander. He's got health. He's got everything he brought with him. And he's riding and everything is going great. But there's a prophet. Okay. The prophet helper. His name is Gehazi. Gehazi looks and says. Uh, my master made a mistake. We could have gotten some of this. I mean did him a big favor. He was really willing to give it all. And so we could use it. Our bank account is kind of dry. Social security is drier. Uh, what are we going to do? And so he follows after Naaman and, and catches up to Naaman and says, hey, general, when he reaches him, he says, general, general, we've had visitors come to our house. And there's a couple young men who have come who have great needs. Liar, liar. But, but they could use some needs. And so my, my master sent me after you to tell you that he'll take a little bit. Liar, liar. And so the general says, fine. Here, I'll give you some. And Gehazi says, okay, I, I don't want a whole lot. I just, you know, give me a little bit. Just give me two talents of silver and some changes of clothes. That's all I need because there's two guys that are visiting our house. And so he gets the stuff and he takes it back home. But before he goes and sees his master, he hides it somewhere in the house, somewhere in his room, somewhere in his own house. He hides everything. And then he comes in, walks in, and he sees the prophet. And the prophet says, uh, Gehazi, did you think I didn't know where you went? And there's a conversation. Here, you gotta, you got to catch it because it's, it's loaded here. Um, verse 25. Elisha says, where did you come from, Gehazi? And he said, oh, I didn't go anywhere. And Elisha says to him, when not my heart, went not my heart with you when the man turned again from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money, garments, olive yards, vineyards, sheep, oxen, men servants, and maid servants? And so his response is, he rebukes the servant. Because the servant has gotten greedy. There's a story out of, out of legend that talks about a woman by the name of Atlanta who was the fastest, fastest runner in the region. That she had this deal that so many, she was so beautiful, men would come and want to marry her. And she made a deal. I'll race you. A foot race. If you beat me, I'll marry you. If you, I beat you, you die. And a number of men took her up on it. Dummies. They took her up on it. And so everyone lost their life. They lost their life lots. And this one young man, Hippopmenes, he decides he's, he's just in love with her. He saw her. He's smitten. And he's, uh, he challenges, to, challenges her to a race. But he goes and gets three golden apples and puts them in his tunic. And as the race starts, she, they take off and she is ahead of him. You know, not by a whole lot, but she's ahead of him. And so he pulls out apple number one and he throws it ahead of her. Into this wayside, she sees the golden apple. She gets off the track, she goes and picks up the apple, gives him time to get ahead of her. And now she has to work harder to try to catch up. She catches up, she passes him, and he pulls out apple number two, throws it. She sees it glisten, she gets off the track, she's sidetracked by the glistening of the apple, she goes and gets it. Now she has to catch up with him, and they're within sight of the finish line. 
And she is passing him and getting a little bit ahead, and he throws apple number three. She goes, gets apple number three, and before she can catch up and pass him, they cross, he crosses the finish line. He wins. Yay! He marries her. And they live happily ever after. <laughs> I doubt that. Okay. But it's a story that, that you know, came out of legend to show about what happens when we get greedy. How it can just deter us and sidetrack us and we end up getting married. No. Um, yeah, the, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to get emails off that. I know I'm going to get emails. But it, we just, we get, you know, things don't go the way we think. And so the whole point of this is, <laughs> it's dumb. <laughs> and because Deb's not here, I can, no. <laughs> His, his point is that Gehazi, and he makes the comment, when he says to Gehazi, I read it and I stopped, where he says, you know, you're after meals and oxen and everything. His point is, and we know Gehazi never asked for all of that, but when you get greedy, his point is, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. It just builds. It's like a canker that just keeps on increasing. And he's giving him that warning that, you, you, know, you know, this isn't the time to get a little bit greedy because when you get a little bit greedy, you become more and more and more and more and more greedy. And that's where he points. So what happens is the prophet says the leprosy that was taken from Naaman, it's on you. But look at the, look at the last verse. It's not just on him. Who else is it on? His generations. It's going to pass down generation after generation. What you have is a story that says God rewards treachery. Those who disobey the Lord. Those who get off track from serving the Lord. Even if it's somebody that you look and say, this person's so spiritual. This person's got everything together. He's a servant of the prophet. You know, there's no way. His, he calls Elisha his master. They have this, he's Jewish in his background. He's trained for the ministry. We can just put that, you know, in the past, he's been listening. He's been serving. He's been doing all the ministry. He's been protective. You can see it in the story of chapter 4 of what happened with the Shunammite woman. But he's, he's got it together. Surely God won't discipline him for doing wrong. Surely God's going to let him get away with a lie. Surely God won't... No, wait a minute. Even if the person has done the Lord's work before, he has gone out and been serving the prophet. He has, he has been preaching a message. He didn't ask for much. Okay, he, his, his lie, his deceit, his greed, it wasn't a whole lot. If we go back to our chart of that three million plus, he only asked for the two talents Okay, uh, the, he asked for two talents and uh, changes the clothes of that number here. It's only worth $1,758. He didn't ask for much that, that, Gehe, that the prophet was, was um, that the general was offering. And so you and I can say, wait a minute, it's only a little sin. It's only a little lie. And nobody knows about it. Nobody sees the treachery that I'm doing. Nobody knows that I've stolen from work. Nobody knows that, I'm, that I've been lying to my parents. Nobody knows that, that I've been looking at illicit pictures. Nobody knows that, that I've been telling lies and gossip. Nobody knows that I've been unethical at work. Nobody knows that. It's a secret from everybody that I go to worship with. And besides, I go to worship. And besides, I do the Lord's work. And besides, I'm, I'm part of a congregation. And the treachery in this is God rewards treachery. God rewards disobedience. God rewards deceiving. God rewards lying. Oh man, it's tragic. The consequences are 
he gets leprosy himself. He brings, it, uh, he brings the, the judgment on his family. He jeopardizes the reputation that Elijah says, is now the time for this? Implication is, we're trying to resolve a national crisis by helping out an enemy. And now is the time for you to deceive that enemy? Now, this, this is the moment. You, you put yourself in a really serious spot. The bottom line is, God rewards treachery. You name it, whatever it is. But God rewards it. Here's a, this, in this, this point of the story is, when we're tempted, which we all are tempted, we need to run. We need to get far away from the temptation. We need to, from Gehazi's example, say, while there's a moment, say no and run back to the Lord. That, that's the story. You got a story of two men. One who trusts, who we don't expect to trust, and God blesses him. One who does treachery, who we expected to be obedient. He fit the mold, but he wasn't living the life. And the message is really clear. It's not how we look to others, it's how we look to Jesus Christ this morning. What is our relationship with him? How does he see us? The message is we need to run away from the evil and we need to run to Christ. There's a story told that comes out of the Kiowa tribes that this woman went to minister to them. Jane Reside was one of the first missionaries there to the tribe. And after they, she ministered for a while, they gave her this name, Aimdeko. Aimdeko, and they wondered, people wondered, what does the name Aimdeko mean? And the chief, Big Tree, finally acknowledged it and said, you know, here's what the name means in our language. She came to be able to tell us that we're going the wrong direction. And Aimdeko literally means stop, turn around, and run that way. And that's what she did. She told us to stop, turn around, and run to Christ. To stop going the path that we have gone. To make a change in their life. That's what this story is about. Stop, run to Christ. Stop relying upon your goods, your wealth, your character, your abilities, your skill set. But run to Christ. For cleansing. In trust. Stop going after things that don't count. Don't go against the word of God. Run to Christ. The songwriter puts, I run to Christ when chased by fear to find a refuge. Believe in me. I run to Christ when torn by grief to find abundant peace. Here's a stanza that I would like us to sing. It talks about running to Christ when tempted, when challenged. And as we close this morning, a song that you've learned in the past, some of you may not know it, it's a simple tune. But it's a message about turning to Christ. And no matter what happens, when stalked by sin, we run to Christ.